0: So we are up to um, sutra number 20, 120. We're still in the first book. Does anybody have any questions or comments from last time? Tom is on vacation this week, so... Our reliable question answer is not here. Anything that anyone needs to know? Um, it's page 48. It's sutra number 120. Okay. For the others, it says. For the others refers to... Yogis who have not attained the highest state by the time they die, um, then they will, owing to the ego's continued identification with outwardness, they will reappear in the physical plane. And for the others, which means the others who have attained it, the highest state is attained through faith, based on experience, strength of will, mindfulness, retaining constantly the awareness of God's presence conditioned oneness, sabha-kalpa-samadhi, and discrimination. And Swami goes on to say it's not only by the practice of yoga, but also what he calls right application, which I found an odd phrase that he just kind of stuck in there. But I think right application of will, energy, consciousness, if not exactly the right application of your nature. So um, I always think it 's an important aspect of the spiritual path to always balance these two factors because everybody is different. You know some people just really thrive on techniques and really learn like that, and others have to work more with their with their everythingness i 've always been a sort of everythingness person where it all has to work together, so I always really appreciate having an articulation of how to how to move through life when you're not sitting on your meditation cushion because in the life that we live we don't spend that much time we're just asked to do something else i remember years ago someone brought to swami kriyananda something that master had said essentially essentially he said meditate 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 and then a few hours a day do a little god reminding work and we were in uh, well we're still in it what we call the kamakasi karma yoga period of ananda's development Everybody just works all the time, as much as you, as much energy as you have. We're always trying to build something. Everything we're doing is like that. Um, and Swami sort of looked at that and he said, "That's not for this age. That's for a higher age. It's for a higher age in which the demands of material life are less intense. You know, we're still in early Dwapara, and so the demands of the material life are very intense." Just in, that, in the light of the yugas, I remember... I think it was Sant Keshavdas, who was an Indian teacher. He died a number of years ago, but he was visiting Swamiji. And they were talking about fanaticism and diet, which was um, something that would sweep through ashrams on a regular basis. All ashrams, um, just kind of these waves would go through. Uh, and I remember it was so interesting. The comment was, this age is too dense. Matter is too dense to make significant spiritual progress merely by purifying the body. Which is, even if the body is very purified, the, the weight of the material world is just too great. And then they said, in Satya Yuga, you know, just a little bit of uh, lightening up of the physical frame and the, the veil between the spiritual and the material is so thin that a little bit of effort that way makes a huge difference. It was, it was an interesting comment that And Master was writing, of course, not just for now, but for the ages. So that's why it's helpful to have living teachers to help you interpret what's written because you can just read that there and think that's the life you're supposed to live. But very few people, very few people who incarnated on this planet at this time can actually withdraw, especially at a young age, from strong outward effort and still continue to make spiritual progress. Almost always... They, begin, they decline spiritually and actually spend less time on spiritual practice than they do when they have a busy schedule. Even if they think they're going to spend more, they almost always end up spending less because it's just not, uh, it's, not its not. the age we're living in. And above all, it's not the time we're living in or the place. That's the word I was looking for, place. Where we live now where it's, as one of my friends called it, it's energy soup. All the time, we're just always swimming in energy soup and major, major rajasic mm-hmm. energy soup. It's just not a place where you can go into stillness. So he gives us here, and this is how the others who do attain freedom in this lifetime attain it. The first he says is faith, and faith is a you know just a gigantic word in all spiritual paths. But the way it's explained in self-realization is is so um, effective especially when you talk about the difference between faith and belief. Um, some um, spiritual paths that do not have the, the component of sadhana and technique and direct spiritual experience talk a lot more about faith and belief. And the way Master d- differentiates it, which Swami does here as Patanjali does too, because faith says too, faith based on experience is that you start out with a hypothesis. Um, You always, the the famous story of Edison when he was looking for the filament that would make the electric light bulb. He had the absolute firm conviction that such a thing was possible. And if he didn't believe as strongly as he believed it was possible, I believe he he did 20,000 experiments, it might have been 40,000. It was a very, very large number. of of attempts to find the right combination that would make the filament, that would make the electric light bulb work. And everybody around him was just saying to him, you're crazy, you you know, this is just not going to work. But no, he absolutely believed it would work. He didn't have any experience to base that on at that point. All his experience was telling him it wasn't going to work. But somehow he had the belief that it would. And then that belief was borne out by experience. And then he had the faith of his experience but he would never have had that experience if he didn't believe that it was possible. And sometimes that kind of belief comes to you in a, uh, almost in a superconscious way. I heard an interview with the man who made the, the map of the human DNA, the gene map, was that whatever they call it, where he charted it out like that? I think it said it took like 15 years or something. I might have my facts wrong on this. But this is, the gist, this is the gist of what I got, the essence of what I gathered from what I heard. When he first determined to do that, people just thought he was loony. They just didn't think it could be done. And, and it came under apparently a lot of flack from his colleagues, as, as these things are. Later on in a, a suture or two ahead, it talks about how the world will mistreat you and how you have to learn to t- take it. And the interviewer asked him if it bothered him and he said, not at all, because he he believed it was possible. He didn't have any experience yet to, to turn his belief into faith, but he, he believed so strongly that it was possible that the fact that others didn't believe as he did was just of no consequence to him. He just ignored it. And then in the end, he, he was proved absolutely right, and he wasn't even slightly surprised. But he was only able to really declare that he knew it was true after he had actually carried out that work. I was thinking about the issue of buying this farm, which is not so different. You know, I, I absolutely firmly believe this is possible. And I believe it's possible because I have faith from many other experiences in which when, you know, the world sort of talks to us in a certain way and forces begin to unfold in a certain way, we have reason to believe, solid reason to believe that this is going to happen. And so we proceed on the basis of that belief because I have faith that God will guide us. And so the, the two elements begin to play together. And in our spiritual lives, we may believe that Kriya works and therefore we do it. But we won't really have faith that Kriya works until we actually have some experience. I remember on the spiritual path when I turned 36 and I started at the age of 24, um... Spiritual life really unfolds often in 12-year cycles. 12-year cycles are really great. When you get close to one, get real happy, either chronologically or on the spiritual path, because they really work. But I I knew that the spiritual path was working, and I knew that I was having lots of fun, and I knew I was exactly where I needed to be. There wasn't any question about it. But just as I shifted out of that one 12-year cycle and began the next one, I could just feel, uh, it was subtle. It wasn't like, you know, a big emotional catharsis or anything like that. But there was this subtle shift in my consciousness that was, uh, in character, it was very different than anything that had happened before. And one of the things that I could feel in that was, you know, those were rather tumultuous years from 24 to 36. Um, I was talking to some people this morning about, wow, some of the things I did in my twenties that Swamiji accepted. Uh, this is an actual true story which I had forgotten. Suppressed is actually the word. Because, you know, I had many fine qualities. I don't want to overstate my airheadedness. But uh, That year, I often organized Swami's birthday celebrations, which was the 19th of May. And then we had started to do this like spring fair or early summer fair. I'm not really quite sure when we did it, which was like a big kind of a, just a fun day in the community. And then every so often we would do an India fair, which was another fun day, but it was in, in an India theme. And that summer, Swamiji asked me to organize the India fair and i just decided that we were too busy and we weren't going to do it and i talked it over with various people but i never told him he actually thought that i was organizing this event and then finally by the time it came out it was too late i had just decided not to do it you know now i think what what could i have been thinking but i just didn't do it and he was not pleased But there wasn't. There was nothing that could be done at that point, and he knew me well enough to know that if he was hard on me, it wouldn't have made any difference. Just strange, you know. But just seemed like a good idea at the time. Where is my brain now? um, Oh, but I I was just giving you an example, and that was just one. I was very, very scattered. Is actually the word for what I was, which was all my enthusiasm and excitement and persuasiveness just gone into a vice because virtues become vice. And so it was a vice. I was just all over the map. And often on parts of the map where I really wasn't supposed to be, I was supposed to be over here. That was karma that... um, I called it monkey karma because every so often when things were going well, Swami would remind me about the India Fair. (laughs) And I called it monkey karma because it would sit in the trees and just when everything was going well, it would drop on your shoulders like this. I mean, it was... He would do that just to test me to see if I could laugh. So, And I, I easily laughed. But I forgot it, I must add, until just recently. Um, but saying all that, there was a lot of stuff that just was chaos in those first 10, 12 years, actually. But when I hit 36, it's like my whole consciousness... It, it, the way I put it was, it was like my subconscious was working against me all the time. And so I was slightly oriented downhill. And as I worked my way up, I was less and less oriented. Then when I turned 36, I was, I was slightly oriented in the right direction, you might say. I was just slightly inclined to make the wrong decision every time. And then I became slightly inclined to make better decisions, which may sound small, but it was, it was a stunning shift. And I remember really thinking at that point, wow this path really works. I was totally devoted to it, had been devoted to it for more than a decade, by every standard. But it was a very interesting shift between belief and faith. Because there was just this experience of consciousness transformation that took 12 years to achieve. I don't usually like to emphasize that to people. But it did. But from that point, my relationship to the path was different. Because it was really no longer belief anymore. It was real faith. And that's what happens to us on the path. You, you come up against an issue. You work with it in the right way. It, it comes out right. And you realize it came out right because of your attitude, your consciousness, and God's relationship to you. And then you begin just on a very deep level. Wow, this really works. And then the next time it happens, you're still in belief, but then pretty soon it becomes faith. I don't, I don't know, I, I believe deeply that we're going to buy the farm. <laughs> but I also have faith in the process. What I have faith in is the fact that God is taking care of us, we are doing our part, I can't think, I wake up in the morning and I can't think of one more thing that we're not doing, that we aren't doing, we could do, and everything that we could do we just are following through on. And I have deep faith in that process. You know, do I have faith that will get the farm? No, but I have faith that we follow this process that God's will will be fulfilled and that's really what we want. I believe we're going to get the farm. And this is like until everything is about faith and faith based on actual experience. And you've heard me talk at other times and it's important to emphasize you really have to know the bedrock of your faith and then you work with your belief. You're always pushing a little farther out into your belief But you need to have a really solid position of faith somewhere. However, as I joke about it, however far back you have to go, however far you have to retreat from your ideal image of what you really want to believe is true. But you have to know where you can stand. Whatever it is that you believe in Kriya, that you believe in chanting, that you believe in your relationship with Guru, that you believe in Satsang, you believe in Ananda, whatever it might be, you have to Start with that, but then you have to find out what is it just, it's your experience has taught you. It's not the dogmas. It's what you, this, the experience has taught you is true. And that's what he says. Those who find God have faith based on experience. And that is also, for our level of dealing with it, you know, when we're in the forest like we are, um, it's, that's also a level of self-acceptance which is also an important aspect of success on the spiritual path, self-acceptance to say, my experience takes me this far, and after that, I'm, I'm willing to go on belief because my faith takes me this far. And, and just really being able to say, honestly, this is as far as my faith goes. And then having it tested over and over again. A lot of us right now, we're having our faith tested on the question of whether or not Swami Kriyananda is actually gone. I think last week I was explaining to you how I had that experience in seclusion, you know, where I said to him, what will I do now that you're gone? And he said, what makes you think I'm gone? And so every day I'm getting to sort of act that one out. What makes me think he's gone? And it's easy to say, oh, he's in the infinite, his consciousness is everywhere. We're reading all these stories of the experiences that people had. Even in, the, uh, in Italy, Naria saw this vision of light and saw Swami going into the light. You know, these are people who are solid, grounded devotees. These things are really happening. But w- where is my own experience? You know, what, is, what is my faith, not merely my belief? And it's a, an opportunity for all of us to find out. Master said, those who think me near, I will be near. And we believe that's true, but have we experienced that that's true? What's it really like? I was thinking, remembering, uh, thinking about Swamiji in that way, that story that he always tells about when a group of nuns were standing outside Master's crypt um, soon after he passed away, after they put him in the wall there at Forest Lawn. And the, several of the nuns were, were crying because of the thought of Master not being with them. And one woman was standing back and she heard Master's voice. She didn't see him, but she heard him. And he was sort of looking at the scene and he said, I'm not in there. And just the same thought. What makes you think I'm in there? Why would I be in there? And there's that, okay, I believe that's true, but do I really, really have faith? And if I have faith, what what does that mean? What does that really mean about the next step in my spiritual life? I found a note just by the way, when Swami was talking about, you know, this was a decade ago when his health was failing, and he said something about, in many ways it would be good if I weren't here anymore. It will be harder for all of you. It will be challenging for you, but it will make you grow. Just a simple statement. Oh, yeah, there you have it, don't you, sir? Whew, okay. So, then, those who find the highest state, attainment through faith based on experience and strength of will. And, well, there you have it. Willpower is really, um, a really, really big story on the spiritual path. And you, it's so, um, It's so annoying on a certain level because on one hand we celebrate the happiness of the spiritual path, we celebrate the naturalness of the spiritual path, um, we celebrate the fact that God is our own nature, that we don't really have to create anything, and yet it's a constant struggle to live in what, you know, should be automatic. And uh, there was a, a very, very popular spiritual teacher who's now mostly vaporized, um, from the 70s when we were there. He had a great system, and naturally he was enormously popular. Do whatever you want and call it spiritual. That works, doesn't it? So naturally thousands of people flocked. I mean, that's a great system. Just do whatever you want. Be as indulgent as you want. And then just declare, since everything is God, this must be too. The problem is, of course, you can tell true prophets from false ones by whether or not it works. By... If at the end, I mean, if the people who follow that path for a long time are radiant and powerful and self-controlled and happy, or if they're just used up, just washed up. You know, that's what you see. People who live without willpower are just washed up at the end. Um, and so he, he talks about here, the half-hearted seeker will never find God. It comes on after this. They give us a few more... Um, a few more bits of advice about how we strengthen our will. And then he says, the reason for this is that tests on the path... He told me he just says it so bluntly. He's, you know, got the spirit of Patanjali here. Tests, tests on the path are many and often. <laughs> and it's just this whole, again, this difference between belief and faith. We can say that and we can laugh and say, oh yeah, tests come, yeah, they're many and often... And we believe that that's okay. But actually to have the faith based on an experience that that's okay is really something entirely different. That really, really deep feeling that God really is in charge and whatever's happening is okay. And tests are many and often. And some of these may be called, I love this, temptations of Satan. Because there's always a part of us that wants to lure us back into wherever we came from, re-indulging in the senses, nostalgia for the mud. Areti and I, uh, one of my nun friends from back in the same tumultuous period I'm talking about, I was talking about earlier in our 20s, we went once, this is a vivid day in both our minds, we went to the Yuba River. We rarely had the opportunity to go off and go swimming, but for some reason we had an afternoon and we used it to go to the Yuba River. And she and I are both a little zany, and we we got into this mood, and we decided to be creatures evolving, and so we were sort of in the the shallow part of the river where it was a little. It might have even been a little muddy or something there, and then we would crawl onto the rocks, you know, gradually evolving. The, we called the game "Up from the Muck," and we would indulge ourselves down in the muck and then crawl up the rock and see how high we could get on the rock before Satan just tempted us to go back down again. And it was actually, many times since then, I've actually thought of it almost in a serious way. Because it was it was that, um, it was a physical and a, and a humorous demonstration of that effort that we're constantly making. And the muck, you know, it's not just um, sensuality or what he mentions here, but just into a worldly life. And a worldly life isn't really just how you spend your Friday nights or... You know what what's in your refrigerator, and uh, whether you have beer in your refrigerator or something like that. It's just also that whole thought that the external is more real than the internal, and the external is more important than the internal, and the temptation of Satan is not always um, in some blatant way, but it's just that thought that comes into your mind that someone else is responsible for my happiness, that things are not really fair. That I don't understand why I was treated this way. And um, I, again, I was thinking about all those years and all the things that, how many times Swami had to shift me from one department to another. And just a lot of things didn't go well. I was not a shining star. I always had a certain talent for certain things, but I was not that good at pretty much anything. publications. Also I ran for several years. It was the same thing. He asked for years. He asked me to do things and I just never did any of them. Just none of them. I just, I don't know. I just couldn't. I was just frozen inside my own head. What I was actually saying to everyone this morning is, Swamiji had a real nose, a real instinct for pulling the best out of people and being able to see the essence and not get confused by the package. And, uh, you know, David Gamow was talking, too, about he and Karen just being left without anything to do. And they said they spent a summer working for PG&E doing energy audits for people's houses. I mean, they just were sort of marginalized in the community. And uh, so they just had to figure out what to do. You know, the the temptation that comes that says, this isn't right, I'm not going to like this, that's really, that's the most dangerous world, they thought, is that we're being treated unfairly, and that somebody else is responsible for my life and my happiness. Very dangerous. I remember, um, I've shared this with you, but it's relevant in this point, there was concern because all of us are aging once about what's going to happen to us and we all get old at the same time. My picture has always been this kind of like old-fashioned house with this covered porch and there's all these rocking chairs lined up. (laughs) because I have a lot of peers who are exactly the same age as me, and so we're all sitting there, you know, we're rocking these chairs, and then every so often, somebody just falls off the edge, and everybody moves down one chair, you know, and we just rock again. <laughs> That's my... <laughs> it's always been my picture. Not too practical, but... <laughs> but there was a gathering of people, and, and uh, Nita has been devoted to Ananda forever, and, he, you know, he's, he's not a wealthy man, he doesn't... He's always just lived almost day to day with whatever's been there. And uh, there was a lot of conversation about what Ananda owed those people who'd given a lot. And he said, he stood up and he said, Ananda doesn't owe me anything. He said, I never made a bargain with Ananda. He said, I gave my life to God and I'm not taking it back. And whatever he wants to do with me, that's all that matters to me. I'm not going to look to anyone or blame anyone for where I end up at the end. And you now that's a lot of belief or faith based on experience. In his life, I think it's faith based on experience. Just time after time, when God comes through for you. But it takes a lot of willpower to hold that. To really hold that thought against the force. And in what's written here is that sometimes it's um, Satan, just really, it's just personification of temptation, and Satan exists, and he personifies his temptation. he just takes some alluring form, whatever that is, whether it 's a thought or a physical reality or it was some saint. I wish I could remember the details exactly, but it was some story about some great master who was tempted by Satan, and Satan presented in front of him one beautiful woman and you know to try to tempt him, and the master, whoever he was whoever he was, manifested a hundred beautiful women. It's like, if I wanted that, I could have that easily. That's not what I'm seeking here. But uh, it also manifests as as thoughts. And Swamiji said once, part of the delusion of Satan is that negative thoughts come into your mind and they make you think you have to relate to them. Instead of you're just realizing that this is not anything, I don't have to relate to this. Just the same as if there's a, you know, if you're an alcoholic and you're trying not to drink, just because there's a, a beer over there doesn't mean you have to drink it. In the same way, the thought comes into your mind of some worldly attitude. You don't even have to relate to it. You can just say, I'm sorry, I just don't do that anymore. You don't even have to apologize. You just say, get out. I'm not going to do it anymore. And then he says, also, just we have past karma. All of us. We just don't know what we've set in motion in the past. And it's, and again, it's all going to play itself out. It's, it's a mathematical law, metaphysical law, that whatever actually comes and, and hits us is hitting us because we were a magnet for it. And the only reason we were a magnet for it, no matter how complex or subtle or seemingly unfair or how hard God had to work to put together all these conditions in order to create just exactly that situation. I did something not too long ago that was very upsetting to a friend, completely unintentional on my part, even more than that, and you know, to try to make peace. I listed out like five odd things that really had to happen, and then also this kind of miasma that had to descend over my mind, which was completely uncharacteristic. All of these things had to conspire to, you know, to do something that was upsetting to my friend. And I myself just had to stand back and say, what can I say? You know, when all, when this much effort is expended by the universe to punch you in the solar plexus, then I can only assume that it needed to happen. You know, and in the moment, the feeling is, why are you punching me in the solar plexus? But a little while later, oh, wow. Look at all the interesting things I learned from that. Because past karma has to fulfill itself. So if it comes to you, depend on it. The difference between belief and faith belief is, oh, yes, it's all fair. You know, we can explain it all. It's all exactly as it should be. And then we turn around the other one and say, why did you treat me like that? Because we have to shift from belief to faith. And the way we get from belief to faith is to have experience oh yeah, it looked like it wasn't going to work out, it looked like it wasn't the right thing, it looked like it was bad for me, but wow, look how much I've learned. Things I never knew, qualities I didn't know. I remember once I, um, I had this bad karma, difficult karma with someone, a friend. But because we didn't see each other very often, I thought I was over it. I thought I was so over it that when I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with that person, I rushed to have that opportunity. And in about 35 minutes... I was just as agitated as I had ever been. And I was so distressed. I was actually weeping. Oh, Swamiji, I just thought this was done. And look, it's just as bad as ever. Well, that's the good news, he said, just like that. He said, you weren't putting out any energy to overcome it because you thought you were free, but you weren't free at all, were you? So, so like I thought that was like tragic. And he thought that was really, i would be I'm being saved. Because, look, if I can just be put off-center that quickly, I really need to work on that, don't I? Oh, yeah, I guess so. So when things happen to us, and if we even bother to call them tests, that means because it has exposed a place where we don't, do not have faith. We may have belief, we might not even have belief, but we certainly don't have faith based on experience. That's why it takes a lot of willpower. Because, it's you know, it's like I was driving the other day just up or back from Ananda Village. I don't know where I was, but all of a sudden the car was just really... And I this is this car that I just bought, and I thought, wow, is it broken or something? Broken. I guess, yeah, cars break. They They get broken. But, you know, just like why would it break right then? But then I looked up and I realized I was in a very strong wind area. But it was so strong, you know, it was just pulling my car off the road, and I had to really concentrate, to keep it going in the right direction. I thought, that's exactly what happens to us, isn't it? We're just trucking along and we're just thinking we're doing great. We're meditating regularly. We're pretty darn nice. And then all of a sudden, we're just like, can hardly stand up because some piece of karma. We've just entered the wind tunnel where that karma is there. Why is that bad news? that's what you have to ask yourself. Why is this bad news? Why isn't this good news? That's the willpower, to stay in the right track. And then he also says, and God also wants to know whether the devotees who seek him are truly sincere. And that's kind of a hard... I mean, people don't like to hear that. But on the other hand, um, it, it's, it's a gift to us to be given the opportunity to grow stronger in our faith. So you can think about it as any one of these ways. So, I mean, it distinguishes Satan past karma and God testing our sincerity. How much do you love me? Um, Someone was reminding me in the life of Sri Ramakrishna, his primary, his main disciple, his foremost disciple was Swami Vivekananda, who was a a very young man when he came to Ramakrishna. He was like 18 or 19 or 20, I'm not sure, but he was young. And Ramakrishna just lavished affection and praise on him. His name was Naren then, he wasn't Swami Vivekananda, Narendra. And Ramakrishna just, you know, welcomed him and was so, um, just showered so much special attention on him. And then one day, um, Narendra showed up and Ramakrishna just didn't even look at him, didn't talk to him, gave him no attention at all. And for one month, uh, Narendra just came faithfully every time, and the Master just acted like he wasn't even there. But Narendra, you know, to his benefit, just—I mean, I, I, how the Master treats me is not—is not the basis of my relationship. I'm here because I know who he is and I know what I can get from him. And then after a month's time, Ramakrishna just one day Narendra came, and he was back to the—you know—the affection he'd always shown him which is I was just testing you to see how you would behave. Also, he was setting an example. He wanted the other disciples to see you know, what, it's, what a true disciple is really like um, and that God really wants to know because it's not going to serve us Let me think how to say it because the other tests will also come. And so God wants to train us. If, he's our coach. If, we, if we're going to have to enter the Olympic trials and we're going to you know, seriously have to swim against really serious swimmers, the coach is not just going to kind of let us just paddle around in the warm water because he knows what's coming. He knows we have to be mentally and physically ready to face our own karma and everything else that we have to deal with. So God himself often um, gives us experiences to stiffen our spine and to strengthen our spiritual muscles. Does it be does it behoove us as devotees to try and distinguish between what is Satan, our past karma, or God testing us? That's actually a very good question. When I was reading through this about how he describes them differently, Master, at one point, makes a point of people thinking that um, experiences are sent to us by God when really it's just our own karma acting itself out. And even when I've read Master say that, I thought, well... Does he bother to make that distinction yeah i, I, I don 't know actually what the answer would be. I think it 's also partly what works for the devotee. I think part of it is that you could explain it in all different ways if, if you know you 're being tempted into worldliness, whatever that might be um, When God is testing you, it's more like with disappointments or perhaps with prolonged ill health or the loss of money or um, your friend's not being nice to you. Um, When Satan is testing you, it's more like, well, it just feels different. (laughs) You're just sort of there and you just feel this kind of um, all-pervasive sludge just kind of moving in and trying to get a grip on you. So I think there is actually a qualitative difference to it. And sometimes when past karma hits you, it just feels like that. You're just walking down the street, and it just blasts out of nowhere. I slipped the other day. I I stand up and hang this this curtain up, and I just stepped down off the edge of my bed, and I don't know where I was. I mean, it was just a few feet, but I put my foot down, and my foot didn't hold. And it was just like so fast that everything was fine, and then whack, I was down on my backside, just really hard like that. Nothing prolonged and serious. But just like at any moment, something can happen to you. Just at any moment. And those always just feel more like past karma just coming due. Like the bill needs to be paid and the bill collector finally found you. (laughs) He's been chasing you for many incarnations and he finally got your right address and he delivers it. But the main point is all karma is exactly the same. I mean, all tests are exactly the same. They're all a challenge, to our centeredness and our equanimity and our ability to stay focused, which is the next point, is to keep the thought of God constantly in mind. So in the end, it really doesn't matter. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Sometimes when you think it's Satan, it's nice because you have somebody you can really rail against and you can stand up against the enemy. The devil made me do it is something I've always really liked because then when the devil is tempting me to do it, I can speak quite harshly to him and it, 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 sometimes it's the right way to respond. You know, I'm just not going to go there. And it's kind of nice to have it be an enemy. It gives you energy. It's very just pragmatic. Any other thoughts or questions on that? That's a good question. Um, then he says, to find God, one must also keep the thought of him constantly in mind, and he calls it mindfulness here, retaining constantly the awareness of God's presence. You know, part of that has to do with what I was just saying about how you deal with these different tests that come to us. If we let our minds slip from what we're actually doing, we forget why it even matters to keep our energy up, to keep our attitude. You know, If we just are back to thinking that life is about pleasure and ease and let's just enjoy ourselves and what difference does it make and everybody else is like this, and we just lose track of what our actual goal is. And then days, weeks hours, minutes, they can all just sort of slip away because we've forgotten that there's an objective here. We've just get into the pattern of living. I mean, so many people just live. They just live. Especially because I'm of an age. I see retired people. I was having a manicure with Shivani the other day. And, um, the lady said to me, are you retired and I just thought to myself, good God, no. But then I thought, well, it was a very natural question. You know, I'm of an age where I might have retired. Why not? I might have worked long enough and accumulated a lot of money like people do and be retired. But it was, to me, it was like a, a shocking question. Why would I retire? But then I looked around and it was, you know, a lot of the women who came into that particular shop, this was the event of their day. Well, gee, on Monday I'm getting my nails done. Wow, that's a big day, isn't it? And you could, but you could just sort of see, there was this one particular woman and she just, she was just passing time. You know, that She not only, I don't think she ever knew what the purpose of life was, but there was a time when she was raising a family or keeping a home. Now she was just retired and uh, changing the color of her nail polish for God knows what reason, but there you are. But I'm only saying that I thought it was cautionary. I wasn't I wasn't judging her. I was just looking and thinking, wow, how easily that can happen. That you just become fixated on the details of your routine, even your spiritual routine. You just become fixated on the details of your routine and you do not retain, how does he put it, retaining constantly the awareness of God's presence. And it's a... It's a particular danger in an ashram even. I thought of it more at Ananda village where we lived more isolated. But it was very easy to just fall into a routine. And actually, um, when when we went through a lot of the turbulence of the 90s, because of all the litigation that we were in, and it was just a very turbulent time, and a few people left our community who'd been there 25 years. You know, really long, seemingly deeply committed people. And it was a little bewildering to me. And Swamiji at some point made a comment about how it's not he, wasn't, he didn't have Patanjali to refer to, but it's not enough to go through the motions. You actually have to be making a concentrated effort to live super-consciously, is how he put it. And when I thought about it, and I thought of some of the people who had bailed after such a long time, I realized that they were not living super-consciously. They were living a good life. But they, they, they were not mindful. They didn't have that constant awareness of God's presence. It had just become a habit. And bear in mind, this for, for the others, and the others that this is a description of is for those who actually realize God and don't die without attaining the goal. And this is how they do it. Faith based on experience, um, strength of will, and retaining at all times the remembrance of God's presence. And, you know, that is not always just um, the word God or, or, or an image of God. That's where the eight manifestations of God are really important. I just gave two webinars on that, so I don't want to go into the whole thing again. But it's understanding that part of retaining the consciousness of God is to be in tune with the flow of the divine energy and consciously aware that what you're expressing is the divine energy. You're not merely expressing good qualities, you're not merely being a charitable and a kind person, but your very kindness, your, your good attitude, your energy, your capacity to love is the result of God flowing through you. You're mindful. That's the difference between Ordinary people and saints. You know, sometimes people think that someone is a saint because they're they're a good person. But Swamiji makes the distinction, as long as they are ego-identified with their own actions, they are far from saintliness, even if their behavior is good. You see, the difference is the mindfulness. Am I really conscious of God's presence? Or as Master put it once, am I only being good because it's my habit to be good? That was a phrase once that just stuck in my mind. It's not enough to be good merely because it's your habit to be good. You have to be good because you are conscious of God's presence flowing through you and that is the vibration that you really want to live in and has nothing to do with you. And again, I'll go back to, f- to belief versus faith. There's a point at which you begin to really understand that that's not just an idea. And this Profound, impersonal energy sets in about yourself. Even the experience I was talking about where all these coincidences stacked up and caused me to punch my friend in the solar plexus quite by accident. But I had such a, 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 an impersonal feeling about it. I mean, I said that I didn't mean to do this, but it was like I didn't even do it. It was like all these forces had to make it happen. Um, and I can't say that was a really divine understanding, but you see, that's that's the beginning of how we think about it. We're thinking at all times that we're flowing with God's energy, and that's what's making it work. Okay. So, um, do do we have a question? Are you retrieving the microphone for a different reason? Uh, okay. Okay. Um, I think we'll take a break. Before we finish this sutra, I was going to finish it before the break, but there's two more big points to go. I thought we might not get farther than 120 tonight, and it looks like we're not going to. Okay, let's take a little break. Would you say would you Would you say that our I use the word belief in God is is belief, or would you say that it's faith, or are they too close to really say one or the other? Well, I believe a lot more things about God than I know. I've had you know, I I mean belief in the existence of oh, God I believe that thing in the that existence you... of God, but when I believe that God is all pervasive and everything is made out of consciousness, do I really know that? Not from actual experience, except just a glimpse every once in a while. So it's I have a certain experience and then after that I'm acting on belief. Yeah. And and it's it's helpful just to be honest. I, I feel that a lot of faith is based on past life experience. So that there's that, that I sometimes realize that I have a confidence in things and I don't really know why. And there's nothing in my actual this life experience to support that. But nonetheless, there's a deep conviction. I remember saying to Swamiji early on in the spiritual path, I told him that I just had this passion to be happy, just this fierce desire to be happy. And I said, I've never been unhappy. (laughs) It's like I'm always, you know, determined. And my life was, I had a very positive and, you know, harmonious upbringing and all those things. He just looked at me and said, past lives, Asha. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. We're not starting with a blank slate. So from all those lifetimes of uh, more dramatic events, comes this conviction that, you know, there's a truth here and I'm going to find it. That was from childhood. There's a truth here and I'm going to find it that was way out of proportion to what my life looked like. So you can't always tell. And then you don't always know. I, I mean, I, I think it's very fruitful um, to at least explore sometimes, you know, what, what are the boundaries of my faith, Just even just as an idea. What would I do if? What would happen if? I mentioned to you all when I uh, was in, the, in the Seoul, Korea on a flight to India by myself and I had a three or four hour layover in the airport there. And I just played out this scenario. What if I got stranded here and had to spend the rest of my life here? Would I be able to accept that with equanimity? Would I be able to say that was God's will? Would I be able to go forward? Would I, able, would I be able to determinedly find a way to serve God? What would happen if? And, and you don't have to act out all those things, but when your mind goes there, it's, it's not a bad idea. What if everyone in my family died? I was, when I was in Assisi, um, when Swami died, when we were there, there was a woman there from one of the Balkan countries where some really awful things have happened, and she was just conversing with me about having an inclination to want to move to an uh, Ananda Assisi. And I, as I am, I try to encourage people, and I was sort of asking her what might be holding her back because oftentimes people will be asking the question why should I move when the actual question is why not move and if you kind of turn the question sometimes the answer is more obvious so I was just asking her if there was anything holding her in her home country I said well do you have any family there that you know wants you to stay you have to take care of and referring to whatever the hostilities had been she just looked at me and said no they were all killed oh man suddenly you're just stepping into some place that at least I've never walked and you could tell by the way she said it that that was not so long ago and is still happening in her reality so I you know I, you stand back and you think what if what if everybody that I love for some reason or another were killed just died How would that? how would that feel what kind of faith or belief would I have at that point so no you don't know and that's why God tests you so that you can say afterwards I do, I have that I have that faith, I'm able to hold on yeah. and that's why when bad things happen they're not necessarily bad God is just giving, he's increasing the weight on the little pull-up machine because otherwise how will your muscles ever get strong so anything else? Well, then Patanjali goes back to, after we are retaining constantly the awareness of God's presence, we reach Sabhakalpa samadhi which is what we reach before we're free, conditioned oneness. And then he talks about, if while meditating, one thinks of himself as sitting surrounded by vast space. And uh, I, I was meditating like that this morning, just for the fun of it. What was so fun, and this is the last word, where he puts it, because the mind's inclination to ever be drawn to outwardness, to really try to sit and meditate and, and imagine nothing. I mean, our, our, our heads are so full of images of, of where we're sitting, of who's around us, of what the cushion we're sitting on is, what shawl we're wrapped in, just the mere possibility of all of that going away. Just pushing yourself into that state of sabukhasva samadhi even looking at the infinite through the window like we were talking about last time we were together we were talking about that sitting there meditating and instead of looking what we normally look at look through the window I've been finding the samadhi poem uh, since I mentioned this, since Swami died I've just found the samadhi poem so vivid and especially you just take pieces of that you know, and uh, it, it, beyond limits of the mortal framed the farthest boundary of eternity? We're just, if my consciousness has expanded beyond the limits of the mortal frame, and we're just always sitting here inside of our body. But what if our consciousness has expanded beyond that? Years ago, when I still lived at Ananda Village and used to run weekend retreats, we um, did a a retreat on the chakras, and uh, we went down to the river, And we were having an experience through nature of the qualities of the chakras um, and we were lying on these granite rocks that are there in the Yuba River Canyon. Just how long have those rocks been sitting there? I mean, you know, they're big rocks, really huge, gigantic rocks. And you're stretched out completely with as much of your body as you can in contact with those rocks. And you just feel the, Enormous power of the earth element and expanding your consciousness, you know, beyond your fingers and your arms to just embrace that solidity, just complete shift of your energy. And then we went up, looked at the sky, and I remember there was a hawk way, way up there. Presumably it was a hawk, it was some bird that looked like that to me. And he was floating on the air currents up there, and it was just, you know, again. Like, there's this awareness of all this distance between me and that bird. But what if that was all filled in with my consciousness? Just so there is no distance, that there's beyond limits of the mortal frame to farthest boundary of eternity. That's where my consciousness is. But imagine that there's nothing in that reality. It's not like you're absorbing all the people you're in the bustling bazaar and the cow going down Rigot Lane and all of that but there's nothing in it. And this is where we have to go. I mean, just the detachment from everyone we love, everything we think we are, um, the place that we live, the age of the body, the gender, the name, everything. If it's all just space around you, none of that is there anymore. And this is one of the, those who realize God before they die have to look first into infinity through that window. It's it's a fa- it's really a marvelously fun, and I did find that the that the samadhi poem really enhances it, because there's so much power in those words. They're not just poetic images, because master wrote them from the consciousness that they imply. So when you say them, they're not just good words, but they they carry the vibration of what you're actually seeing. Very very powerful. Um, try to relax so deeply that he that one is not aware of your body at all. It's so fun when the body goes away. Don't worry, it comes back. <laughs> People will come to meditate and they'd be so afraid, you know, what if, oh honey, that's just like not a problem, trust me. <laughs> if it becomes a problem, you'll know how to deal with it. It's, it's so, I used to be am, am, amused when um, those first uh, eight or ten years when I lived together with the nuns and we used to meditate together together um, most mornings in the little teepee temple that we had there. It was sort of a joke, but not really. We'd sort of all stumble in there really early in the morning, and I always was surprised that we knew which consciousness to take out. I mean, like, we'd sort of all come together, and it would just kind of go into this little amalgam, and I was always so amazed that we'd all walk out with the same one, that we came in with, I mean. And, of course, the ego ties you to the body, and the ego ties you to your samskars and all of that. I suppose... You know, in the consciousness of a master, you don't walk in as one and walk out as one. You're, you walk in as all. In the book I wrote about Swamiji, I talked about that experience we had at Disneyland where we were in the huge crowds um, of the you know, hundreds and hundreds of people lining up for the electric parade. And Swami just looked at all those people and then he turned to us and he, was, he said, imagine being every one of these of these people and then he said not merely loving them but actually being as much in their consciousness as you are in your own and he, then he said that was master's consciousness i just it, it's so interesting because we think about loving but it's way beyond that we actually are that master said i'm in so many bodies i don't know which one i should keep moving and then he sort of stumbled I have to ask others whether or not I've eaten. Amazing. And when you sit to meditate, those who succeed go there. We, we we go beyond just, oh, this feels good, and I like these people, they're nice. We go to the actual really trying to cut the tie with what binds us to delusion, and we have to project ourselves into that. We have to use... what you, what, what you do is... You use your creative imagination to put you in tune with a vibration which is actually there. It's not the same as a visualization where you're just making it up and making yourself feel good. There's a lot of visualizations that are just feel-good visualizations and that's, that's fine. But what we're doing with this is we're lifting our awareness to a more subtle realm until we actually meet that realm. Just like when you're doing the ohm technique, you're affirming that you're hearing the Aum until you actually hear the Aum. You're affirming that you're raising your energy with your Kriyas until you actually, the energy is actually being raised. It's not um, imaginary. It's really there. And he puts that as a fundamental um, point here, if we're going to succeed. And then the last is discrimination. It's, just, it's so fascinating, and I, I can't give you insight into why he chose just these qualities. But these are the qualities he says. Um, And then he talks about discrimination. And and many times here he um, warns us against false visions. And somewhere in Patanjali, I'm not sure that Swami translates it exactly that way. But one of the obstacles to the spiritual path that comes later is false visions, hallucinations even. And this is such a sensitive issue between the fact that we really need to cultivate this expanded vision and the fact that we really need to discriminate carefully between imagination. And Swamiji has re- referenced that several times. People run their lives by what they think are, is their guidance. And as he writes, you know, somewhat poignantly, I've seen people make terrible mistakes on the basis of that. So part of what is fundamental here, you know, this is the people who realize that they have the discrimination. So that even when you see visions, are they real or imaginary? Right discrimination can help you make this determination. I remember that movie, which I'm sure many of you saw. Was it called A Beautiful Mind? It was about that mathematician who lost his mental balance. But I loved, I loved the way he finally figured out that the people he was seeing who weren't real, weren't real, but just a projection of his own mind, was he realized they never aged he realized he'd been seeing them for a long time and they were always the same age. And that just, that fact sort of captured him and then he he, he realized, because he couldn't tell, at least the way they presented, it, it was a very dramatic and well-done story, but when somebody he didn't know came, he challenged them to find out whether they were actually a hallucination he was having, whether they were a real person and he needed them to prove to him them him that he was a real person because he'd become very suspicious, the mere fact that it appeared to be true he realized, was not proof that it was true. And so on the spiritual path, when we become dedicated to the spiritual path, our subconscious will throw up a lot of things. I don't mean vomit up, but po- vomit is perhaps partly what I do mean. Will will throw it in, into the forefront of our consciousness, experiences that seem to be coming from inside of us, that have an enormous subjective reality, subjective meaning that we're the only ones who can see it. And so just because it's coming from inside of you does not mean it's coming from the superconscious. And that's what people what we really have to understand. It's not just a question of intuition and I feel from inside. We have many levels inside of ourselves. And we don't want to be compelled by the subconscious or even the conscious mind. We want to be guided by the superconscious. So the mere fact that we feel it deeply from within does not necessarily mean that it's taking us where we really want to go. And that's a very fine discrimination. We were having that conversation earlier about um, the farm that we're trying to buy and I was saying that people, some people say there's a mystic relationship with land. You know, did I feel that about this farm? Well, I, I'm not inclined toward that kind of experience, and I, I think this is past lives. In a very real sense, I hold back from that kind of experience. Sometimes I have clear intuitions and I know it. I tend to go more like, it seems like a good idea, let's go forward, rather than a declaration, because I just don't, I'm, I'm suspicious. I don't have reason to feel unless I really do feel that it's, it's really the truth. Let's see how it plays out. Swamiji himself was always like that. I mean, I think he had much more powerful, true intuitions, but he would still say, "Let's." Let, seems like a good idea, let's try it. I mean, he talked about when he walked onto the land at Ananda that he felt that Master had blessed this land. I felt when I first drove onto the land of Ananda up at the meditation retreat, and I, it was the middle of the summer, and I opened the car door, and I was wearing these leather sandals, and I put my foot down, and this cloud of red dust went up around my foot. You know, shades of many years to come. But as I touched the soil, I had a very, I had a very strong feeling that there was integrity in this place. And I must say, it did feel like home. It was, just, it was just there. It just happened. But this is what he says. Um... A real vision will bring with it heightened consciousness, a feeling of bliss, clearer awareness, and it will be life-changing. And that's actually, those are very solid criteria. You know, my inclination that that was my home, it was life-changing because from that moment I was just absolutely determined to live there. And it took some doing, my circumstances were a little complicated at that moment, and it wasn't quite a straight line, but there was just no question. I knew where I belonged and I was going to go there. And if we have endless visions but life just seems to go on as normal, that's a clue, just like that man in the movie. How can I tell whether this is my subconscious just raising these images or my superconscious really guiding me? Well, here's it is. Heightened consciousness, a feeling of true happiness, a clearer awareness. And above all, that in some way you will really be changed by it. And you won't be changed just because you're saying that you're changed. You'll be changed because you will simply be a different person. If Jesus really does come to you, you will be different afterwards. But we can often dream of spiritual things, which is, I think is great in itself, because that means that that's where your awareness is and those images are coming to you and your subconscious is getting on the side of your superconscious. But merely because the images that you have in your dreams are are... are, are Elevated images does not mean that the dreams are anything but subconscious. They just are. It's just that that's what your mind is using. This and that and the other thing. But then every so often, uh, it's not, uh, it's really there. There's a real visitation and you know. And you feel it in your heart. You really feel it in your heart. You're not, you do not just emotional about it. You feel it in your heart. I've had a few dreams like that. And it's just, they're always there. They're just always there. I had one before I moved to Ananda. So it would have been, what, 1970, like that. And it was a real visitation from a real, a real saint, and just I can see it, just right there. I know it was, and it was a reassuring dream at the time, you're on the right path, you're doing the right thing, and just there it was. And I still remember it, it heightened awareness, that's what I'm trying to say, you know, that the experience. It was brief and it was, you know, not a big deal, but just there it was. I, it was, I was really reassured at a time that I needed to be reassured, it's still there just clear, crystal clear, in my mind. I mean, what is that, 30, 40 years ago? And I've had other dreams in which, you know, nice, holy people wander around in my dreams, but nothing happens from that, because it wasn't super conscious, it was just... But it, I always was nice, so oh, that's nice, nicer to spend my time there than at the Kmart. You know, <laughs> there could be a lot of other things coming in. <laughs> so it's not Nothing. But it's very tricky, it's very important. And at the same time, we have to keep trying. But discrimination, because if you don't have discrimination, you, you, you don't know what to do next. You'll just get really confused and you go in circles. And it's an obstacle to spiritual growth. Okay, any questions or thoughts? This was a good sutra. I thought it would take us all night. Okay, 120. finish. Thank you all very much. No class next week. Yeah, you know, he had fun making that. He made that meditation room the color of the spiritual eye, and then he put you know, he put little stars up in there. Because and... yeah, just let's imitate it. Let's when we were when we were building this temple, and at first uh, there was some question as to whether the spiritual eye was going to be too big, and people were not. They had doubts about it, and somehow I knew it was the right thing that we ought to do so I made one out of cardboard and Christmas paper mm-hmm. and that remember it was it's a bit, it was five feet across this is only four I think we couldn't we had to do it in proportion to the rafters and things like that so we couldn't make it five mm-hmm. so we put this huge it was up there for a long time remember it was made out of, of foil wrapping paper mm-hmm. because I realized that nobody could imagine it until they saw it but people became very enthusiastic about it and then when Swamiji came to visit and because, you know, I, I needed, we needed his approval, I wanted his approval. I said, you know, is it too big? And he said, it should look big enough for you to be able to walk right into it, he said. And I always just loved that. He said two things. He said, it should be placed in such a way that you have to lift your eyes to see it. And then I said, is it too big? He said, no, you shouldn't be able to walk right into it. And I've always loved that just picture in my mind. Yeah. So I would, would have made it two feet bigger, but it just wasn't in proportion, so we had to give in. Because everything emanates from that, you see. that's the, That should be the biggest thing on the altar. That's first. And the masters and everything come out of it. And when masters are really big and the spiritual is small, you have the... I mean, I'm just being a visual artist here. I'm a, I'm a wordsmith in pictures. I <laughs> can't help myself. Okay, then... Yeah, that's right. I was saying... I've been feeling like Swamiji is pushing money through the spiritual eye from the other side to buy the farm. <laughs> that's the picture I've had of him. He's just on the other side and he's just pushing the money through. <laughs> and people are saying, oh yeah, it's in my bank account. I'll give it, I'll give it. <laughs> okay, that's that. Thank you.